This is the one with species bondage. Thasmin in handcuffs. It's my dad in a box. Doc smashing in the TARDIS. And the mobilization of Suntaran ASMRs. It's called the Halloween Apocalypse. Here we go. Whistle on our epic phrase. All through time and all through space. Whistling and angels are. Dalek, Cyber, Zood and Wow! Counting Sonic's rating out. From the poor to the sublime. Eccleston to Whitaker. Let's agree it's about time. Who back when? Reviewing on you who there is. Who back when? Subscribe and rate on iTunes, please. Rose and Donna. Amy Pond. Rory Clara. And beyond. Join, Join us on this side to see what other choice could there be but who back when? Who back when? What ho, podcast land, and welcome to what is sure to be yet another absolutely legendary, much-talked-about episode of Who Back When, a Doctor Who podcast. Or Docpast. What? What is that voice? Where does it come from? Tis not mine. Because mine is mine. I'm Leon, but that voice belongs to, oh my goodness, the man, the myth, the legend, the one and only... Obviously, it's Drew. Hello, Drew! Hello! But who are you? Did you say? I did say, yes. <laughs> oh, good. I got carried away with your eulogy of me. <laughs> Holy smokes, dude Meister, we are here to discuss... I say that we're here to discuss a legendary episode a lot. And it feels very strange to me to say that about an episode that is so incredibly recent. In our memory, even, I remember this... We watched this, we reviewed this even-ish, we discussed this at the time. Yeah, this was almost (laughs) post-pandemic. Almost, yes, that's right. We are here, Podcast Land, to talk to you about the very first episode of the, I think for better or worse, legendary Flux season, namely the Halloween Apocalypse. Yes, we have already talked about it before. Oh, what human folly. I realise only now, I've not re-listened to that as preparation for this episode. Did you? It's B075, and I did listen to it, and do you know what? We introduced it by saying, well, it's just Drew and Leon this time, but next time we'll definitely have Marie and Jim here with us, and we'll be quarrels, and it'll be great. (laughs) But we're going to make it great just the two of us, Podcast Land, because we know how to do that by now. We've done this for long enough. Dang right we do, and have, and will. Mm. Yes. High level, Drew Meister, how do you feel about the Halloween apocalypse? And also, if you're able to, in your mind and heart, to separate them, how do you feel high level, retrospectively, about Flux? Oh, that sounds like pretty much half of what I've got planned to say for the next hour and a half. (laughs) Um, I'll start (laughs) off by saying that, listening back to our previous review, I cannot believe the naive optimism with which this excitable ingenue greeted as a 37-year-old, as if apparently still fresh out of the womb, this new series. There won't be unanswered questions, I basically said. Chibbers has turned a corner. There's no looking back. Right. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm intending to be exactly that optimistic about this because high level, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed this episode. There are a lot of bits of it that I find insanely annoying, infuriating even, and utterly inane. Unnecessary, in fact, which on an editorial level is even worse than inane. Yes. I can think of numerous choices to leave tiny snippets in that had they been excised, the episode would have been markedly improved. Absolutely. But I do also recollect that this episode leads nowhere. (laughs) Ultimately, it will lead nowhere. Or it will lead to a point that is going to be somewhat disappointing. But at this point, 
at this point in time in the Who universe, in the Who timeline, I'm actually quite optimistic about it. And I'm happy oh. to echo that optimism from years and years back. We've completely swapped. When we first reviewed this, you had watched it twice in quick succession. And mm-hmm. fresh off that second viewing, you were bringing a balanced, mature perspective to it. And I was oh, just like, really? oh, but it's so shiny and loud. <laughs> I cannot wait. Podcast Land, please pause the episode right now. Listen to that episode. B075. Right. I'm going to do the exact same Podcast Land. So, I mean, join the club and then come back to this episode and see if anything tallies. I have no idea if what I'm about to say is in any way congruous with my past opinion. This is great. Oh, I'm excited. Mm. But what (laughs) are we about to say? And what is it about that we are about to say? (laughs) Drew, you took the words out of my mouth. I think there's only one way for us to find out, and that is by virtue of a bite-sized chunk of who. Let's. Time for us to synopsize, lubify and summarize. So take a view and grab a brew and listen to this overview. This free for all we like to call a bite-sized chunk of who. Bite-sized chunk of who. Since we last saw the fam finally sloughing off its redundant half, Doc and Yaz have been whirling around the universe, taking in amazing places, circus workshops, and meanwhile in Liverpool in 1820, Joseph Williamson is compelling the multifarious unfortunates of the Northwest to come on inside his tunnels to nowhere. Because meanwhile, nicest guy in Liverpool, Dan Lewis, nay Stevens, is giving free museum tours, handing out free food, and planning to give die a meanwhile the tardis is on the fritz requiring a series of escalating blunt force traumas to get it to meanwhile a quartz-headed bad egg imprisoned since big bad one is coming out of his cage and doing just meanwhile the doc's would-be murderer from the beginning turns out to be a laser axe wielding dog who kidnaps lovely scouse dan in his own electrified crate meanwhile arctic circle meanwhile outpost rose meanwhile sontarans and did we mention the flux B-Scout over. I have redlined. You are welcome. Aren't you just podcast land? Yeah, that's a lot of meanwhiles. Yeah, and we didn't even get through all of the episode, I don't think. (laughs) This episode does set up a lot. It is a first, it should be said, for New Who, that we have a season-long six-episode storyline. But it's not a first for Doctor Who, obviously. This is something that echoes a narrative sentiment that we experienced in Classic Who all the time. Yeah, and we mentioned in our previous bonus review the Dalek Master Plan, 12 25-minute episodes, as long as this will ultimately turn out to be, basically five hours of content. So my question for you is, did the first two episodes episodes of the Dalek Master Plan just introduce people willy-nilly and advance nothing at all? Absolutely not. This is also, in fairness, because Chibbers, thank you for listening. I want to be fair to you. Dalek Master Plan was aired during a time of Doctor Who when an episode was 22 and a half minutes long or something to that effect. And the expectation was at the end of the first 22 and a half minutes, you should get a cliffhanger that leads on to what would be the second half of part one today. But halfway through part one today of the Halloween apocalypse, pretty sure we don't get a cliffhanger. We just get more meanwhiles. <laughs> yeah. It's a very different tack. Very different. It's Chibbers's signature move, but maxed out. The most extreme we'll ever see. Holy smokes, yes. Absolutely. I've got an opening question for you. Oh, I want to hear it. Has Neptune gone? Because <laughs> <laughs> they're on the edge of the solar system and a yeah. bluey white planet just buys it. It's just engulfed. 
Is that how close they are at the start? Yeah, the dock is heading to Earth from the edge of the solar system. Not at the start, when the flux is hot on the TARDIS's tail near the edge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In answer to your question, yes. That's no. exactly what's happened. That's awkward. Okay, I've got a real opening question for you. All right, let's hear it. Is this Jodie's best episode as the 13th Doctor to date? Yes. Yes! Yes! Great! Oh, I'm so pleased. Which brings me to what I also wanted to open with, namely Jodie Whittaker. She's great. Mm. She's fabulous. Jodie Whittaker is... I feel mean saying for the first time, but certainly for the first time consistently, Jodie Whittaker is the doctor. Yeah, yeah. It turns out she acts better upside down. (laughs) How do you feel about that opener? I feel like it might be the most exciting cold open ever. Not the best. There are lots of things they could have done better. Sure. But not to light speed, essentially, (laughs) in a few seconds. Wow, you can't throw anything more at the first three minutes of a new series, surely. Completely agree with you. It is incredibly exciting. It's still fun. Doc and Yaz are both incredibly blasé about the situation that they're faced with certain death in brackets and it's really good tv it's solid entertainment i also really enjoyed the release release relief and then it releases oh yeah really good fun yeah i thought it would have been fun you know they're always doing callbacks and smash cuts i thought one of the doctor's superpowers maybe could have been putting on their previous incarnations voices like it's in their memory somewhere it's not totally lost and so just had jody lip-syncing along to any number of the doctors pertwee going release matt smith going release release <laughs> that would have slowed the scene down but boy the fan service potential yeah you're right they could absolutely have done more with that just have her cycle through every single doctor to date just have her do every doctor she can yeah, every doctor fact, we've had in fact i wonder wouldn't it be fun if there was a line flub from hartnell times where he was supposed to say release but said relief instead <laughs> and this is why that's the safe word for the handcuffs <laughs> i would be completely on board with that that's, <laughs> that's a great idea actually it's a little mean towards hartnell but it's a really good idea i mean if only that were true i would gladly add 0.5 just for that <laughs> So I suppose we should finish off the cold open while we're here. Sure. Um, Did you have particular things you wanted to say, get off your chest about the cold open? Well, the first choice that I think would have been better excised is you have the kill discs and the grav bar is completely static at the point where they start shooting at it and just prove that they can't hit a static target from no distance away. They're terrible shots. The threat goes out of the scene. We just see oh, they will miss whatever. So why does the doc have to hang there for an embarrassing length of time while this happens? Why doesn't she hotwire the graph bar immediately and then start talking about the handcuffs as they're screaming away at 1,000 miles an hour? Well, the whole intro is, in essence, it's overkill, isn't it? They're on a lava planet hanging off something with jet engines attached to it, like right next to them, which probably is not something you want to hang on to. Yeah, with acid geysers shooting up at random. Exactly. And there are AI-driven killer robots with what look like saw blades flying in their direction. Yeah. It couldn't be worse. The only thing that could potentially escalate the situation if there were frickin' sharks with frickin' laser beams on their heads (laughs) heading in their direction... So yeah, the whole thing is is overkill. We never find out what set of circumstances put them in this 
situation in the first place. Oh, we do. Do we? We do. Uh, explain, please. Yaz says, all of this is your fault. Doc says, what do you mean? Yaz says, accidentally blowing up Carvanista's droid guards when we were trying to sneak into his operations base unnoticed. Then you get the mention of Nitro 9, which is very sure. nice. Yeah, and sure. then Doc suggests we escape the base by air surfing on the grav bar. How was I to know the Force Shield would reboot it? Stop right there. We were Stop right there. I'm sorry, I've already won. Because this doesn't clarify why they're on a lava planet with acid geysers and saw blade AI robot killers behind them. That's overkill. That you is see the kill doing it later on Earth in Liverpool. So Carvanista just has them in his arsenal. He carries them around around i can only assume his operations base is on this planet because nobody would ever build an operations base there you'd have to be insane oh wait crazy like a dog and well a fox is a is so can we can we talk about why they are after carvinista in the first place go on then Carvinista is there because he wants to rescue his assigned human just like all of the lupari who look amazing by the way are there to rescue their respective humans. Yeah, we find that out a bit later, but sure. Sure. So what is it that has led Doc to go, Carvinista, you're after someone on Earth. I'm going to pursue you. That's not why she's pursuing him. She's pursuing him because he is the only known division operative she can find alive. Doesn't that seem like a little bit of a dink to you? Of course it is. But take Dan out of the dink because the Carvanista has to be species bonded to someone. I'm not sure I buy that because that's you saying, can you take the coincidence out of this coincidence? No, you're seeing a coincidence where there isn't one because this division operative just so happens to be, coincidentally, (laughs) species Uh bonded to to someone on Earth, then the program makers make a choice to follow that someone from before that point is revealed. So they could have lived anywhere. Yeah, but this still leaves a massive question mark. Even if she went looking for Carvanista because he's the only operative she can find in the space-time Wikipedia, that doesn't logically then segue into they are suspended from some sort of jet propulsion stick atop an acid lava planet. No. There are several steps missing there. Yes. I have actually written a series of unanswered questions, and you have posed unanswered question one. Why is Carvanista constantly trying to kill the Doctor and shooting at her and Yaz and Dan, even though apparently it's his honour to keep Dan alive? Also, Doc famously protects Earth. The Lupari are pair-bonded with Earthlings. Yeah. Surely it's in their interest to keep Doc alive and perhaps even collaborate with her. Yes, it is. And also they have a history together in The Division. And I've seen, it might even have been fan art, where Carvanista was drawn next to, oh, Joe Martin probably, as the Doctor's first ever companion, like when they were messing around in, in Division. And that was the conceit. So, yeah, absolutely. There's no sense in which he would want to risk her coming to harm, let alone devise a four-dimensional death trap. Wait, you say four-dimensional? Can the Lupari travel through time? I assume that that's basically what Division do. And if they do travel in time, how has this Lupar got dispensation to leave behind whichever human he's bonded to to go and mess around in the time stream? 
Yeah, these are two things that should not be put together. I didn't even realize that he was a time agent with Division. That yeah. already renders most of this plot bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> because either he is a time agent with Division and his jurisdiction is freaking all over the place in which case if at some particular point in time the flux arrives or earth is in peril or whatever someone is effing with t with time then surely he would just use his division superpowers to go to some point before then to resolve it but he doesn't he joins all his fellow lupari i'm assuming all of whom are not members of division on a mission that has nothing to do with division in quote unquote the fixed present so yeah doesn't work for me yeah also unanswered question 1b how <laughs> is he how has he been a division operative and not been subjected to the memory wipe process? Why was Doc chosen and he wasn't? This is a question which I'm almost certain does not get answered. I'm prepared for some unanswered questions to be answered later, but I'm equally prepared for none of them to be I'm answered in, later. I'm in no way trying to defend the division subplot because I think that it is utter pants and it can eat my whole ass. However... In <laughs> pseudo-defense of the Division subplot, uh -huh. I wonder if the mind-wipe aspect of it is for the Doc's benefit only, because Doc keeps regenerating. So Doc regenerates, gets a new life, whatever, and right before they regenerate at that point, yeah. they wipe their memory and that's it. New person, new memory, new life, everything. You're a baby in Ireland. You're about to become a police officer. That's it. Whereas sure. everyone else doesn't regenerate. What's his face? Carvinista doesn't regenerate, right? So there's no point. If you wipe his memory, Carvinista is going to go, fuck, I'm 48. <laughs> and I don't remember being 47 or anything below that. I'm screwed. Well, it makes sense to me that Division would be the Time Lords basically acting as the heads for a cosmic network. You know, it's like people in Star Trek joining the Federation. Every alien gets one guy into Starfleet eventually. I imagine that's kind of how the Division works. Doesn't it seem strange to you that there are people who are members of Division who are not Time Lords? Well, at the moment, we know so little about the Division. All we've seen has been filtered through Pat and his dad or whatever. So well, I'm prepared for there to be plenty of potential unexplored still. <laughs> Imagine a buddy cop movie set in the universe of Division. Okay. The two leads are Dog Cop. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, dog cop. You're half dog, half cop. You're mortal. You live to be whatever. I don't know what that is in dog years, but let's set that aside for now because there are child labor laws, even in the police department. <laughs> You're going to investigate some crime. It's really cool. And you are privy to lots of stuff that goes on around the universe. Don't worry about it. We know that you're a veteran. We know that you've been on the force for so many years. This is your last few days before retirement. Oh, you're no. getting a new partner. Your new partner is immortal, infinitely regenerative, knows way more about science and time and space than you do, is connected to the very fabric of the universe in a way that you could never ever dream of in your fucking canine brain of ever developing into... You're basically equals, right? Dude, uh, maybe show her the ropes. What you're describing is the Mitchell and Webb sketch with Angel Summoner and BMX Bandit. <laughs> I don't remember that one, but I'll take your word for it. 
but renamed <laughs> as Returner and Pooch. <laughs> I'm up for it. Mm. Yeah, it seems strange to me that anyone who isn't a Time Lord should be a member of Division, because Division seemed to me like a Gallifreyan born identity program. Yeah, so I don't think the Doctor does get her memory wiped before every regeneration. A, because there are lots of other Time Lords involved in it, and B, you would then be neutering one of potentially their greatest powers. Like, whoever Division is fighting thinks they've won, they've gunned down an agent. Oh, whoops, they're alive again, and they're coming at you harder than before, because they got blooming marmalade energy shooting out of their hands. That would be damn useful. So the Doctor must have had some other more principled reason where she, or he, or they, wanted to expose the Division sometime way back when, and they figured out what the Doc was trying to do and put them through the memory wipe so that they could remain secret. That is my guess, but again, I don't think that gets revealed. I don't think it does get revealed. I think you're right about that. But then also, add to that, Gallifrey is a massively xenophobic society. No one who is not from Gallifrey is allowed on Gallifrey, with a few exceptions across the Doctor Who timeline. But the flip side of that is they're all so enormously self-regarding that they're like, well, we're far too valuable to deploy on really risky missions. What we need is some aspirational cannon fodder. And that's Get this guy. Like... He's half dog, half cop. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, you know what? That actually kind of makes sense. <laughs> okay. Can we talk about someone else who is equally incongruous in this entire universe? Please. I don't know who you're going to talk about. Dan. Oh. <laughs> oh I should, <laughs> guess I should have seen that coming. <laughs> Can we talk Dan? Well, maybe, but I don't think I can talk about him without doing his voice, you know. Oh, well, feel free. Is it coming back? When we did this back in 2021, it was just this over and over again. I think you need to even Dan it up more. I think Dan really Liverpools it to the hilt. Yeah, he lives in the shadow of Anfield. It's amazing. (laughs) I fucking love Jürgen Klopp. I don't know how you feel about Dan, but first off, I think he shouldn't have been in this episode. Like, he just shouldn't be a companion. Done. But he has no role in this episode. If you remove Dan from this universe and this timeline, this season, could probably still have a pretty exciting season. You don't have to waste airtime on a character who wasn't there before and who, for all intents and purposes, we don't know even exists. Yes. Well, what it comes down to is something that you mentioned in our first review of it, but didn't quite draw together. You mentioned Praxius an awful lot. And what happened in Praxius was Yaz and Annoying Sidekick of the Week immediately went off and had a bunch of adventures. And Yaz got to appear relatively Doc-like and capable. And that is exactly what will happen in Flux. Because for some reason, they are maybe not even as scared of just having Doc and Yaz together in the TARDIS on adventures as just letting Mandip Gill carry a scene or an episode by herself. Self. Give her the limelight. Why does she have to be wisecracking with someone from Liverpool about how northern one or both of them are? Also, I don't want to look ahead at when she's temporally separated from Doc, temporally and spatially, but why is the only way that the BBC production team and Chibber's team see fit to exhibit her agency to show that she is somehow, you know, that that happiness is withheld. Why not just be a fulfilled individual? In that opening scene, the cold open of this episode, when she is hanging upside down with Doc, it seems like those two are getting on like a house on fire. There's still a little bit of mystery 
country because there are things that they disagree on. Absolutely happy to explore that further. Those two also, they're action-packed and they're fun and they're adventurous and they're interesting on screen together. The only kind of agency that we get is not only Yaz pseudo-doctoring Dan later on. This is looking ahead at the rest of Flux. Yeah. But it's also having Yaz not be allowed to experience the joy that she was right before Flux started. Yeah, yeah. My note is right from the start of this episode, we get Brat Yaz, the one who shoved Doctor almost off her feet when she reappeared after decades in space prison and Yaz was the first person she came to. Rather than a less entitled and juvenile version, I really wish we'd seen some of that sweet spot in the intervening few years where she was both likable and given enough screen time. Yeah, because, I completely agree with you. Because right oh, sorry, from no, no. when they are hanging upside down, yeah. sure, she's pointing out how the Doctor got them there, but it is in the exact same peaked, angry attitude that we get later on. So it just ends up reflecting back to that as, oh, that was less fun than... This is just Yaz, as you say, not being allowed to experience joy. Yeah. And in addition to that, again, this is looking ahead at what I recall of the rest of Flux. If the idea, if the intention on the part of the BBC is to make Yaz seem more pseudo-doctor-like, a better thing than showing Yaz alongside one of her temporal peers, namely Dan Stevens, would be to have Yaz next to non-temporal peers. If Yaz were to be traveling through space and time, or at least through time... (laughs) with people who are not of her time, people who don't have any of the references she does, that would make her more of a Doctor-like character. Mm. The fact that she and Dan both know what a computer is already makes it less Doctor-like that she is part of that narrative. Get rid of Dan, have her travel around with someone from the, I don't know, 18th century, 19th century, and have her talk about computers or binary code or whatever, and that already makes... It's so synonymous with how Doc views the universe vis-a-vis any one of her human companions. Yeah, with anyone except Ada Lovelyface, of course. Of course, of course, yeah. It's been done. Anyway, back to Dan. Yes. You know what? We have an explicit tag on iTunes, so I don't care. Dan is fucking too good. Dan is such a good guy that it makes me want to puke out of my ass. Why? What? It's called shitting, dude, but go on. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm puking. Anyway, Dan is... No, you said this this last time in 2021. Dan is so likable, he's unlikable. I thought that when he opened up his cupboard and found those four strands of spaghetti, he was going to run after the guy with the eggs and say, wait, wait, with my last scrap of food, you can make the world's shittest carbonara. Put a pin in that, please, and ask me about that pin in a moment. But in the meantime... Does Dan donate all of his own food? So he has a day job. Then he also volunteers at a food bank where he donates food to people who can't afford to buy food. By the way, welcome to present day Britain podcast land. Yeah. He seemingly owns a whole house with an empty fridge. What kind of, what? Who has these, what kind of finances are these? Dude, North finances are very different. 
not in the shadow of Anfield, I imagine, unless there really is an incongruous street there, which his family has happened to own the property for like 100 years or something. He's a tradesman. He's fallen on hard times. Like- Fine. So he works at a food bank, but he himself has no food. He must know that he needs to eat at some point. Yeah, but he doesn't I... want to potentially take delicious soup away from people who might want the soup tomorrow. But does he not have... Has he donated his entire income as well? No, I don't why think is, so. Why is his fridge empty? Is it because he doesn't have time to go and buy groceries because he's too busy helping out at the food bank slash volunteering at the museum, even though he is so good at doing so that he is about to be banned from it? <laughs> That whole museum scene, by the way, makes me want to throw up out of every orifice before you ask. It's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, oh, it doesn't matter. I can't do the accent. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. Oh, the Guggenheim has nothing on this place. The Louvre can suck my entire dick. The Museum of Liverpool is where it's at. Come here. We got everything. The Museum of Liverpool is the pinnacle of humanity. Yeah, we got the writers, we got the footballers, and we got a really nice comedian stand over here for me, John Bishop, Liverpool's premier celebrity. I just want to make people happy. What's the point of life if not to make people happy and being a soppy twat? (laughs) Oh, come on. Come on. I was going to say that in his defense. What's the point of being alive if it's not to make others happy? This is how society functions. No, that's a lovely sentiment. Absolutely lovely sentiment. But he is the embodiment of the naive perception of what society might be like, not what society is. And that simply doesn't fit into a narrative. For me, I I may be subjective, but it doesn't fit into a narrative in which no other character has that naive perception of reality and of society at large. Yeah. And what it points out to me is we have had a lot of the Doctor saying throughout their history why they choose the companions they do when they have a choice because they're the best of humanity. Yaz gets slathered in this thicker than maybe anyone. More than Certainly Dan? most. But the point is that I could understand it if it were applied to Dan, but it will not be. Dan is a companion by accident. Dan is Yaz's companion. I don't think the Doctor and Dan ever do any kind of bonding. She doesn't compliment him. She doesn't get to know about his character and his exploits on Earth and his altruism. Yaz, while being about to do that through her public service in the police force, sort of gets cut off in that and just pales next to his utter self-sacrifice and yet gets all the plaudits. And so it just all seems false. I don't really remember what Dan's exit is like. He exits in the power of the Doctor because he's like, oh, when I was riding on that train and uh, I nearly got thrown off into space, I wouldn't have liked that. I'm going to stay here on Earth. And then he's gone after 10 minutes and we were like, is that it? Does he come back later? No, no, I got a better offer. I watched that no time ago at all and I have blocked it out of my mind. But I assume that it is at least in part related to his relationship with, is her name Di? I'm not even sure they make that clear. Really? They just want him off. They've got a lot to get through and they need him out the way ASAP. How do you feel about the actor? What's his name? John Bishop. 
John Bishop. Am I the only one who thinks there's not a single thespian bone in John Bishop's body? How do you feel he does in his portrayal of Dan Stevens? <laughs> you slipped straight back into calling him Dan Stevens. That's what you did throughout the bonus I, Yeah, episode. at this point, it's semi-knowingly. I'm, yeah. I'm happy to admit okay. that. Well, John Bishop, I looked it up on IMDb, he had done some acting before. And not just Panto, although his first yeah. credit on IMDb is for Panto, the series. <laughs> <laughs> it was just in Oxford with a Panto. Oh, with Ian McKellen. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen more two-star reviews of anything in my life. Yeah, one of those two is an actor. <laughs> <laughs> he was also in four episodes of Fearless, which was an ITV drama starring Helen McCrory and Michael Gambon, and somehow also John Bishop. Wow, weird. So he, he hadn't had zero acting experience before, but next to zero... I thought this time, as I did before, that after the incredibly cheesy opening scene where he's basically just ripping open his chest and saying, look, I bleed Liverpool. Drink it up. Drink my life force. Go ahead. It's what we do. After that, I thought he was fine. And he was lots of fun for most of the Carvanista. When he had a bad line, he sank with it. But that's happened a lot lately. So I thought he did fine. So imagine this episode without him. Oh, yeah, I can imagine the rest of the Doctor's run without him. We don't need Dan at all. Well, there you go. That's exactly what I'm saying. I think it would be great if we didn't have him so that we finally get to explore the character of Yaz. Agreed. I'm not arguing that. I'm not disputing that. That is verifiable fact. (laughs) But as an added-in character... I wasn't that bothered by him beyond his apparent structural necessity to exist, which was mistaken. So I'm looking at my introductory questions, and I actually only have one more question that is only tangentially related to Dan. Okay. That's the close. The rest of my notes are effectively sans Dan. They're Dan's. Yeah. And it's more about Diane. Yeah, there you go. It's in my notes. It's more about her, really. Or it's, it's about both of them. Yeah. Is, is it... Why would you meet for not a date outside a haunted swimming pool? That's almost exactly word for word what I've written. Are you serious? I'm not even, I've written, where the shit were Diane and Dan meant to meet for their date? Hey, Diane, let's meet up outside the old haunted mansion on Nightmare Avenue. That's what I did. <laughs> Goodness. Well, surely that question then occurred to many listeners and Clearly. viewers. Clearly. It occurred to both of us. A hundred percent of the sample. (laughs) No, it's bonkers. What do you think they were meant to do on their date? Not a date. Not a date. What do you think they were meant to do on their not a date? Well, they were going to walk around, but not arm in arm. Uh, They they were meant to meet up. It's not meant to be officially romantic, but clearly there are romantic undertones to this meeting. But it doesn't matter. Let's say they meet as friends. Let's meet after nightfall outside a really creepy building. No, no, no. It's a very specific meeting point. It's not like I'm going to walk back and forth. We're going to meet outside the 7-Eleven on the corner of X and Y. Yeah, it's we're going to meet right here outside Haunted Mansion. (laughs) What the F? What? What do you think they were planning on doing? Scaring children? But we've already seen that Dan is far too nice. He treats children with indulgence and wishes them a happy, safe evening. 
So not that. Not every trick-or-treater pin. Oh, so nice. why, why? It's a very uninteresting pin to pick up. But would we not have benefited if we had cut that entire bit? No. Because I absolutely assumed there would be a callback to that guy. The grown-up with beers and eggs who is trick-or-treating. He serves no narrative purpose seemingly at that point. Yeah. Would you not assume that there's going to be a callback to him around about Act 3, where it's, oh, the only thing that can destroy this monster is chicken eggs. How are we (laughs) going to find it? Bing bong, look across the road, someone's ringing the doorbell. Turns out it's that guy, even drunker than before, grab his eggs, beat the monster. Yeah. Eat my eggs, instead of whatever the guy in uh, The Woman Who Fell to Earth. Eat my salad. So why is... Yeah, yes, exactly, it's that guy. So why is this dude in this episode? I'll tell you why. Because it gives Dan some tiny bit of variation before he's thrown into the centre of the plot. Dan, instead of being super sunny and super happy can give a bit of Liverpool back to this bloke. And I thought their interchange was quite funny. So I thought there was a character element there and there was also a humour element and the humour element worked for me. Okay, like when, he, when, when, he, when he said, you're not even dressed up. And the bloke's like, neither are you. <laughs> Just such a lame comeback, but such a plausible one. He's got no possible defence, but I just liked it. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you liked it. Personally, I didn't like it. I think it would have been better if we had had the exact same kind of character development that your character reveal that you're referring to, but in a more plausible context. Maybe that could have been at his workplace, because the only thing that we know about what he does for a living is in the post-credit sequence slash teaser for him joining the show. Of course, that's his trade, whatever that was. Yeah, we have no idea what he does in series, so it would have been better in my mind, it would have been better to reveal him at work, being a productive member of society, and maybe encountering someone who adds some friction to a dialogue, and he reciprocates said friction. We see that, no, this guy can be pretty gutsy. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't get why we have that guy. I think it's important as a comedic interlude, A, amongst the niceness, and B, amongst the tension and the mystery that this episode is also throwing in. It does a lot, and I feel like Chibber's identified that as there needs to be some jokes around here, and... Yeah, I I think he's more on point with this script and its structure than most, even though it's all purely epilogue and character introduction. Okay, fine. As I said, I'm very happy that you enjoyed that. I would argue that exact same character development is evidenced in his next interlocution with Carvinista. Mm -hmm. Because I love his interplay with Dogman. I think that's fantastic. It shows exactly that level of, quote-unquote, Liverpool that you're referring to with him and the uh, trick-or-treater. And it is relevant to the plot. It also, at the same time, automatically, just by default, develops Carvinista as a character. I think that bit is great. If we could fast-forward to that, I'd be entirely on board. Possibly. I think it also feeds off and builds on that first guy with the bevies. But, yeah, probably could have been skipped and it wouldn't have lost too much. Fair enough. Shall we segue from that to Carvinista? Oh, yes. Hairy and Estonian. Oh, I remember looking that... Oh, my God, I remember looking that up at the time. Amazing. How do you feel about Carvinista? Well, we've already talked about the nonsensicality of him constantly laser axe shooting at people who either former colleagues or wards of his who he's genetically bound to protect. Like, what? 
Well, can you imagine a Jason Bourne-esque situation where Carvinista and Doc look at each other, Doc has just lasered Carvinista right in the tum, and Carvinista goes like, oh, do you get the headaches as well? They're the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, I see. Mm. Yeah, okay. I think he's fantastic. I really yeah. enjoy Carvinista. Yes, I do too. Nonsensical stuff aside, he's part of a number of good one-on-one scenes with Dan, with the Doctor, and at the end, actually, I think the most expressive the dog gets is when his jaw is wide open as the flux is fucking up everything right at the end. And because it's a dog <laughs> yeah. looking sad, I'm like, oh, oh no, oh no! <laughs> Almost yeah, more yeah. than when the humans are in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, your empathy gland starts to twitch. Yeah. Even more than when we get to see that whole planet of green aliens summarily destroyed. I know. I don't know who they are, but in my bullet point list for the Vindex, I've just written those green dudes at 43 minutes in. I don't know who they are, but they deserve a Vindex point. Yeah. Some sort of memorial section. Yeah. Yeah, Carvin Easter, by the way, was played by Craig Ells. I didn't look him up, but I remember he's had some prior connection or he's done similar-ish prosthetic work. Well, he appeared in an episode of Law & Order UK with Bradley Walsh. What? Yeah. Mad. He played Home Office Official 2 in Leave to Remain, which sounds like a dreadful horror film. Fuck you, Home Office Official 3. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm on my way to the big time. (laughs) But yeah, I didn't see much. He must be a tall guy in prosthetics some of the time. Oh, oh, he's also, I think, later on, the chief sea devil. So that would track. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm so sorry. I've forgotten your name at this point. I apologize, but I'm very sorry. You really liked him. Is there more to say than that? Well, production value-wise, I thought that was terrific. Mm -hmm. I think the production team deserves every accolade for what they did makeup-wise and outfit-wise and costume-wise and whatever else. The concept of having an alien species unbeknownst to us paired with us individual by individual to take care of us because man's best friend, great. I think that's a great idea. Mm. Really, really solid. Well done, Chibbers. That's taking the space dog concept and bringing it to its zenith. Absolutely. Yeah, well done. Really, bravo. And also, again, if I haven't said it already, thank you for listening, Chibbers. I don't remember where this is. You know what? It doesn't even matter that I don't remember because we are reviewing this episode, not Flux in its entirety. But I do foresee that maybe there's disappointment on the horizon. Oh, there are all sorts of disappointment on the horizon. (laughs) And I'm sure there's room for this one as well. Did you buy him as the vanquisher of a thousand civilizations? No. No, nor me. No. This is a show, a showrunner's era, and a set of alien characters, however, that incorporates, for example, the uh, Pating, which is designed to be really cute and is intended to be a potential vanquisher of universes, even. Right, yeah. So it's kind of in Chibber's wheelhouse to put something that looks at least visually relatable on screen and say, no, this is incredibly destructive and evil. Yeah, that's a good parallel. I hadn't made that connection. But surely he'd be a bit more troubled if he has vanquished even half that number of civilizations, say a mere 500. And at the same time, ingrained in the Carvanista society is this respect for another species and its lives. How could they possibly square that away? 
I feel like there's an entire step missing here, and that is how is the Lupari civilization connected to human civilization? Yeah. Sure, they feel this incredible affinity for and loyalty towards us, but why? Yeah, have we done anything to merit this? At some point, we must have, you know, fed each other and kept each other warm in caves in order for this kind of affinity to develop. But we didn't, because they're Lupari from an entirely different planet, which apparently is way more technologically sophisticated than ours. If anything, we are their dogs. We are the dudes <laughs> who are keeping their saber-toothed tigers out of their caves in prehistoric Lupari times. But we don't get to see that backstory. So, yeah, I guess thematically I'm on board, but factually, even just theoretically, no. I feel like there's something missing here. Yeah, yeah, there definitely is. <sighs> I did like his squeaky nose, though. Just after he says, a thousand civilizations, and Dan's going... <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of fun. Is Carvinista the leader of his society? No, I think he was just the one. Oh, and here we are again at that C word. Just the one who happened to go through a temporal disturbance. And that's why he ended up at Earth a few hours ahead of his buds. Oh, right. Wait, what's the C word? Coincidence. Oh, I see. Yeah, of course. The reason I asked if he's the leader is later on, Doc goes, I'm sending you the, I don't know what, the... A, a new pattern? knitting pattern. Yeah, here, I'm sending you a pattern for how you can enrobe a planet with your spaceships. Seems kind of basic, to be honest. It doesn't seem like something that requires the Doc's intellect, but sure. She's really good he, at tessellation. He sends that to all of his species and everyone follows suit. Yeah. Into line, they fall instantly because the clock is ticking. There's no back and forth. There's no Lupari High Council where the idea has to be submitted and passed. Well, let's say you put 10 humans in a room and just wait for one of them to have a really good idea to take their agenda forward. You're going to have at least three of them present an idea and approximately three of them are going to be bullshit. So if... <laughs> I, I knew that was coming goes, and I relished it and I enjoyed it very much. If Carvinista suddenly goes, hey, I'm also a pooch. Here's what we should do with our spaceships. Never you mind all of you people who are beaming down to Earth's surface to kidnap your respective humans. No, you're going to do exactly what I say. Why does everyone fall in line and do exactly what Carvinista says? That seems really weird to me, unless he is the leader of their society, which he is not. Yeah. And if he were the leader of the society, presumably he wouldn't be out on his own. He would have exactly. a retinue, attendance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's a oh, plot hole. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. I'm still giving this a relatively high mark. But but yeah, there are things that don't work in this episode. Yeah. I'll tell you what does work. Oh, let's hear it. Every time that one of his devices goes wrong, he sniffs at it to be like, oh, <laughs> I can't figure it out. Nice. I didn't notice that. That's a lovely detail. Yeah, he does it when the Doctor sonics his battle axe, and he does it when, oh, here we are at unanswered question four, <laughs> his mind control gauntlet doesn't work on Dan, seemingly for no reason. Like He absolutely expects it to yeah. mesmerize him, and Dan's just completely unaffected. He expects it to work on the one species that absolutely everything in their entire species culture is <laughs> centered around. Apart from Vanquish. <laughs> but sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's a bit odd. (laughs) A little bit. And on the subject of things just not working, unanswered question two is, why did Swarm's containment chamber malfunction this time, when for the prior two minutes, they'd exhaustively gone through all the parameters, minutely indicating that every reading was utterly unchanged? Yes, agreed. Let's segue to Swarm on that note. (laughs) Let's maybe say some positives first, shall we? Yes, Let's say some positives. There are some. There are plenty. Swarm is creepy as balls. Mm. Old Swarm In... and young rejuvenated Swarm. Certainly, yes. Insinuating of a very rich, dark history with Doc or the Division. Yeah, he almost looks seems, great, by the way. He almost seems like the whole Division was on his case. Like he was a Davros scale baddie back before the dawn of whatever. Yeah, he has been incarcerated since the dawn of the universe. So people say. So people say. Fair enough. I did also make a note of that. I appreciate that is not to be taken literally. <laughs> he looks fantastic. Yes. In fact, every single effect that in any way is associated with Swarm is gorgeous. Like, utterly stunning. Yeah. When he absorbs the guard, I think she's called Sentak, and it's, oh, yeah. her molecules are flying into him, and also the camera is flying towards him, and his eyes are glowing, and his mouth is just a huge black hole. The effects are horrifying, and fantastic. They yeah, are and every time he absorbs a particle, he grows a new crystal out of his cranium. Oh yeah, and it just watches his head pulse and mutate for a few seconds. Looks well, better than Doctor Who's ever looked. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's utterly stunning. I don't remember what happens to him at all. I remember nothing about it. I'm this not gonna character. tell you. I remember there being a dude at some point who's called the snake or the venom or the serpent or something like that. The Grand Serpent. The Grand Serpent. All right. Okay. Mm -hmm. I got that. Ish. Who is possibly young Swarm. That's in my mind anyway. Mm. This might be wrong. I can't remember if that's a connection. Maybe. There's a lot I can't remember. But yeah, we'll skip over Swarm's ending. (laughs) Okay. I don't remember at all. But in this episode, it did strike me that here we have another character who has been Doc's nemesis since the very beginning, since earlier than Doc herself can even remember. Yep, and that we've ever been witness to. Which kind of touches upon two points. One, classic Chibbers, and one, (laughs) missed opportunity. Classic Chibbers is... There are so many occasions when Doc goes, oh no, not Alien X, who is one of the big bads since the beginning of time. We've never encountered them so far in the timeline or in the universe, but they're really big and they're really bad. And oh my God, I know all about them. Like the SAS Daleks from last time. Exactly. That Yeah, exactly. That was the last episode and we had that. And the other thing is, it seems to me that either this should be the master or the master should be introduced to this serial, because I view this whole season as a serial. The master should be introduced and go, no, I'm the big bad. Yes, but we just had the master. And we're going to get the master back before Jodie's done. I would have been heartily sick (laughs) of such a (laughs) one as the master by that point. Even though we had plenty of Missy in Series 10. Or maybe that's part of it, you know? know. That's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Just to say, because I'm going through the whole cast, Sam Spruill played Swarm. He's just been in The Gold, which came out very recently. Everyone keeps telling me to watch that. Ah, well, you'll see Sam Spruill. He's also in the latest series of Fargo. I've never seen that, but I've 
told myself to watch that. Yeah, and he played another young man in The Lady in the Van. No one's told me to watch that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, two and a half star, straight down the middle. <laughs> okay. Straight down the line, yeah. I liked Swarm and the Doctor, though. I felt like, although Jodie was sort of at her most passive in those scenes, when he was hogging all the screen time, I felt like the dynamic was different. When she was talking with the Master at the end of the last series, he was driving everything, and he was being given the stage. But here, I felt like she was letting him talk, almost. I felt like she was like, yeah, okay, I don't know who you are, but you're going to tell me. And so she's learning. I feel like Jodie is better in this episode than previously because, and actually I've mentioned this before, when she's done well, is she's had authority in scenes, or she's been working to get the authority rather than she's diminished next to someone else who's elevated above her for no good reason at that point. Yeah, that's an yeah, no, interesting point. Uh, no, you know what? I'm just kind of agreeing with you. <laughs> oh, great. I'm even internally, I'm nodding along with you. That's the ideal outcome. Stop there. Don't work it too hard. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I'm trying to, in my mind's eye, I'm trying to, I know we're not supposed to be doing this, but I, I'm trying to look ahead at the rest of Flux. Is Swarm the Grand Serpent? That I genuinely can't remember. Because I remember the Grand Serpent being someone in the future, somewhere in the like far-flung reaches of, the outer reaches of space, somewhere in the future, sometime in the future. What, maybe approximately where Vinder's from? I, I was going to say, let's segue to Vinder in a second. But also I remember him being a character on Earth who potentially takes over units? Yes. Right, okay. All right, so there are a couple of things I do remember correctly. You know what? I have thoughts, but I'm going to leave them. I'm going to leave them for now and uh, put a pin and in one or two New Who reviews time, let's revisit this. Yeah, it's tricky. I mentioned this at the beginning. Now seems a good time to drop the note is with our added hindsight, even with everything we've forgotten, we know a lot about the series that we didn't know when we reviewed this the first time. Yeah. And one thing that means I'll be knocking some points off relative to what I would have given it then is the fact that back then I thought, wow, they set up the whole thing, but they haven't. We haven't met all the characters, even though that was all this episode was character introductions. We haven't met the Grand Serpent. There's Grey Worm's pregnant girlfriend, Belle. AKA, yeah, I'm true. from Northern Ireland and I'm pregnant, so I'll be treated like my baby holds the key to saving the universe. Or it could even be the doctor when actually it's not important in any way. Oh, I forgot that she was from Northern Ireland. I totally forgot. I yeah. absolutely forgot. Yeah. I do remember Grey Worm, though. Oh, sorry. I remembered Past Tense Grey Worm. And when Grey Worm showed up in this, my note is hang on, hang on. <laughs> I've just written, oh no, now I remember Game of Thrones. Oh. <laughs> As in, do you remember his part in this serial or do you remember Game of Thrones the series? What are you talking about? I had forgotten that Game of Thrones was part of this season in general. Right. And I distinctly remember that it is highly anticlimactic. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. And therefore, unfortunately, my memory of later episodes of Flux taints my experience of this episode of Flux, and I couldn't get over it. I hated Game of Thrones in this episode. I also felt he kind of undersold a galaxy-devouring event. Yeah. Also, oh, I'm here, I've got nothing to do, my job is kind of surplus to requirements, I'm going to end with my regular message, which is, fuck you, big <laughs> man. Stop recording, click instantly segue to fuck here's the thing i should have mentioned in my recording is about to happen 
I'm just going to escape it in an escape pod that surely can't travel faster than the flux, but it can apparently. And yeah, oh, dot, dot, dot. so it's faster than the TARDIS because the TARDIS can't outrun the flux. It's bullshit. I hated everything about Game of Thrones in this episode. I'm perfectly happy with this actor being involved in it because he's a good actor. He's solid. It's nice to see him acting as a character who has still his undercarriage. But, have you seen Game of Thrones? Nah, but I can imagine it. Yeah. He's a cool guy. He's a cool dude. He's also a rapper, I believe. I've not heard his actual rapping outside of Harmontown, but he's pretty cool. All right. I would just say that maybe he's solid later on, but he's not nearly scared enough when he says, emergency status update, everything's going to hell. Ah. Yeah. He gets better later on, but flip, dude, you're instantly... Kind of underwhelming. But you could also, I guess, make the argument that maybe he doesn't know what kind of post-production shenanigans are going to be attributed to the scene that he's commenting on. So maybe <laughs> what he thinks is, oh, I, I guess what we get to see is some kind of shiny big bad kicking a planet in the balls. Yeah, it's really bad. But actually, afterwards, fast forward a little bit, and in post-production times, they pump a shit ton of money into it. And what you get to see is what the flux actually looks like, which is epic. It's amazing. It's incredible what it looks like. Just the visual is mind-bogglingly advanced and elaborate. And therefore, it seems as though he hasn't acted accordingly. Yeah, and you get that tying into another trope of the Chibba's era, which is someone explaining, typically Ryan, hey, what's that? Is that a ship graveyard? Boom, they're in the middle of the biggest ship graveyard ship you've ever graveyard. seen. Yes, exactly. And that ties forward to Dan on the edge of the solar system. They've just been gazing out at the beauty of space. And he goes, what's that? And the flux is instantly pretty much half, right there. half yes. the horizon. Exactly. <laughs> Because, yeah, they can't give Yaz that dumb and obvious enough an observation. That has to go to the rookie companion while he's on probation. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that one. Uh, Absolutely. Wait, so what else is there to say about Game of Thrones? Not so very much. But my point was that his girlfriend hadn't been introduced in the series. There's also Eustatius Jericho, if you remember. The Exploratoriator from a past time. This is a chap who travels around with Dan Stevens and Yaz. Yes. Yes. When they get separated from Doc. Yeah, we haven't met them yet. Yep. There's um, also Time themselves. Whom we won't meet until the very end. But yeah. if we hearken back to something that you said at the very, very beginning, potentially, or sort of halfway through where we are so far in this recording, okay. that this episode is all about setting up characters. This is a gratuitous act one of a story. It sets up all of these plot lines. Game of Thrones... Dan's date, what's her name? Diana. Diane? That's one of those. Die. Die. Lupari, Flux, Swarm, Swarm's sister. Azure. Azure, who's hidden inside a person somewhere in Norway, I think. Was it in the Norway? Arctic Circle? Arctic Circle, same diff. <laughs> I'm from Sweden, I can say that. What else? What else? Hang on, there's more. There's more. Sontarans. <laughs> yes, of course, the Sontarans. Yeah, Sontarans. The tunnels being dug in Liverpool in whenever it is. 1820, Joseph Williamson. Bingo, there you go. There's a lot being set up, which is frankly amazing. At this point, not knowing where the season is heading and trying desperately, this is a few years ago, just a couple of years ago, trying desperately to forget everything you know about what Chibbers is going to do, namely disappoint you. It seems like this is setting up the most epic season ever. Yep. That's how I and Andy Parkinson reacted originally. (laughs) I wonder if Andy has reacted accordingly this time as well. (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh, wait, hang on. There's more. There is an angel. Oh, of course. Yes. And Claire. And Claire, who, you know what? Can I introduce a new segment? Oh, yes, please. Oh, this, wonderful. This segment is called Paradoxy Do's or Paradoxy Don'ts. If you, let's clarify, a canonically established time traveler in the middle of some big temporal trouble, Doc. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> If you run into someone clearly under some psychological duress who mentions that you will meet her later in the past, do you? (laughs) A. Stop and ask her, cool, what's up? Who are you? Yada yada. Uh How do we meet? What can we do to help you? You seem really distressed. What can we do to help? I'm the doctor. That's kind of my raison d'etre. Or B. Do you assume she is mad, not give a single fuck, and leave her in the middle of the street? (laughs) (sighs) Well, if you're Yaz, you want the doctor to do A, because Yaz lingered. Yaz actually did. She does, yeah, she's right. A bit more compassion and empathy in that scene. It was painful for her to leave this woman behind. The doctor, she goes as far as to say, you seem a bit confused about your past. (laughs) (laughs) Why would I bother with you? Even if I did, you'd forget it. (sighs) Hang on. Wait, sorry. How does this even work? Because she says she will meet Doc later on, i.e. later on in her timeline, in the past. Later on in the doctor's timeline. But why in the doctor's timeline? Because it's later on in the past, but it's also in her timeline later on that she will be in the past. She's Does the this p- actually make sense? She's in the process of coming back the long way round, which she yeah. very pointedly says. Yeah. At the end of which, she is sent back. It yeah. seems to me that she is in an endless loop. Possibly. I can't remember what happens to Claire at all. I'm super curious. I do remember that episode. What's it called? Village of the Angels? Yep. I remember that being amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, that was my single angels related thing. But that is another thing that is set up in this episode. Yeah, You're not describing a gratuitous act one. You were describing a gratuitous dramatis personae. We've had a, a 50 minute list of characters. Yeah, that's right. Which somehow has taken on the role of Act One, or rather, Act One has taken on the role of a dramatis personae. You're absolutely right. Mm. So, what is Act One then? Aside from here's who we have in this episode, aside from that, all we have in this episode is the swarm escaping and the flux about to reach Earth. That's it. Yeah. Do we have anything else? Everything else is counter exposition. Yeah, or hints or foreshadowing, I guess. Yeah. The Doctor's relationship with the Looper slightly changes. They're still kind of hostile, but they're not trying to kill each other exactly. Apart from when he is just firing willy-nilly, which I still can't get over. It's very silly. Sorry to go back to the Swarm, but how do you feel about the Swarm being incarcerated slash escaping? Oh yeah, well that was my question too. I'm mostly pernickety annoyed that <laughs> he just does. Like, clearly he has incredible time-traveling, matter-manipulating powers. Yeah. So, it's just so binary and unexplained that someone could ever confine him in that way, and then after long enough, he just undid it, but he waited for his captor to come along to rub it in her face. Didn't even need the second one. Just let her blow away on the breeze. (laughs) Yeah. Man, that scene is bloody hardcore, though. All of those scenes, you're right, yeah, that second one, but also, if we go to his sister on... um, Arctic Circle. Thank you. I was about (laughs) to say in Norway again, actually. 
But yeah, if we go to his sister, his sister's alter ego's husband or partner or whatever also gets fried for no reason. We don't get the context for that, by the way. Do we ever get the context? I feel like we never get the context for that. That's two more unanswered questions. Why did a warning saucer get sent to the Arctic Circle and nowhere else? Yeah. And who was it sent to? Is it a division thing? Was this your acting as a double agent? Because there were fugitive of the Jadoon parallels in that the Doctor was in disguise there. Not in physical disguise, but character disguise. Yeah. She'd taken on a different persona. And so here we get the inverse of that. Instead of the Doctor, we get the anti-Doctor. We get Azure. We don't know quite what she represents yet, apart from potential evil. But that seems to be what he's playing off against. And, oh, well, I think the Doctor treated her companion fairly shabbily in Fugitive now I think about it. So maybe she should have been kinder there. But still, isn't it brutal when it happens this time? But no, we don't know who Mr. Arctic Circle, possibly Norwegian, possibly Swedish, possibly Finnish, who knows? (laughs) Possibly Icelandic was. We don't know who she's been masquerading as. Why has she been masquerading? She doesn't seem to recall this. It's almost as though she is doctor in family of blooded herself. As the Arctic Circle alter ego, she doesn't know that she herself contains Azure. Well, that's the same thing with Ruth Clayton and the Doctor. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, that's true. But Ruth Clayton slash the Doctor has her companion who knows who she is and who he is. Yes. Yeah, there is. Whereas Swarm's sis Azure is joined by someone who is equally oblivious to the circumstances. But there must be some circumstances that they know about because of that floating saucer thing. Yeah, they're both clearly working for Division, which is weird because they just have a life. (laughs) They don't do stuff. They're not on a mission. They just have a life. And the second their job calls and goes, hi, we know that you are quietly quitting. (laughs) Here's a thing we want you to do. He doesn't seem in any way perturbed that his partner smashes the shit out of their Zoom interface. Yeah. Yeah, it's very perplexing, that whole Arctic Circle nonsense. Yeah. John, that's his name. They promised this would never happen, says not as you're. Except in the gravest of emergencies, says John. (laughs) I'm assuming his name is Jon. (laughs) Well, who knows? The Arctic Circle's a big place. No, you're probably right. Oh, yeah. Plenty of people there. Who else? Who else have we got? The Sontarans! The Sontarans look amazing, by the way. Oh, goodness. When he says, you look old, you look disgusting. Boy, does he. Yeah, he does. They both do. Everything about that... Actually, production value, costumes, makeup, everything across the board in this episode is some of the best we've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. I made a note. I bet RTD has been watching throughout the Chibas era and thinking, if we could ally my storytelling skills to this budget, maybe I'd come yeah. back and run the show. And this time I'd have more than two loo rolls, a cube of polystyrene, and a 10% off voucher at Fun and Frolic. <laughs> Can you imagine what we have in store for us? Oh, man. Can't wait. Mm -hmm. Don't even have to wait that long now. Mere months. So exciting. But yes, the Sontarans and Dan Starkey is back. Is it Dan Starkey? I think Dan Starkey is the one in the hologram. Oh, I see. I didn't realize. Okay, yeah. That sounded to me the more Dan Starkey of the two. Although for all I know, he could be both. 
But yeah, you put I, a ledge regardless, even if he's neither, I don't care. Yeah. Dansaki is some of the best stuff about this episode. Mm-hmm. I liked their old warrior rapport. Like, they've been on countless campaigns, and they can be completely horrible to each other, and just laugh about it, and the certain massacres that are to follow. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. There was only one part of the Sontaran sequence that made me feel, mm, this is a bit cheap, or I know exactly... I can imagine all of the offcuts. I can imagine all of the outtakes of this sequence. Oh. And that was the possibly the very last. And by the way, this in no way takes away any level of enjoyment. I love the Sontarans in this episode. But it's the bit where... I think it's the very last of the Sontarans that we get to see. He goes, Sontaha, attack! And he raises an arm... Yeah. Towards the, do you know exactly what I'm doing it yeah, on he's, webcam? He's wielding it almost looks like a scepter, but it must be some kind of weapon. You can imagine him having done that twenty times in a row. Did I get it? No, okay, I'll do it again. Did I get it? Oh fuck, alright, fine, I'll do it again. Can someone give me a glass of water? I've been shouting all day. And I don't care. I love it. Yeah. The Suntorans are fantastic. I love them. And I cannot wait for the next one. The post credit sequence next time on Doctor Who, which is all about Suntorans. I remember very little about it aside from a walk. Does Dan oh, kill Suntorans with a walk? It's like the only thing I remember yeah, I about this it. It starts a running thing of Dan and whatever's to hand knocking out far superior foes. Oh, really? oh no. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm super, super duper juiced up. Mega stoked about the next episode. Yeah. And also, I think the Sontarans are more fun when they're being savage. The Daleks, they're Nazi tanks. So yeah. that insidious undercurrent is always there. The Cybermen, they're stripped of emotion. So they're just killing machines. The lone Cyberman, okay, added a little bit there. He was properly nasty. But the Sontarans, they get to just be as horrible as possible and they relish it and they bask in it. And I find it so lovely in the least lovely possible way. I completely agree with you. Yes, absolutely. They are possibly more naive than the Daleks are. The Daleks, I think, are more aware, more self-aware and more aware of their own destructiveness than the Sontarans are. Sontarans walk around with an off switch (laughs) on the back of their necks and they don't realize it. They think that they're the greatest warriors in the universe. They do, and they relish trying to play up to that. But I also think they're the warriors that just have the most fun. They're more committed to it. They haven't distanced themselves from the sheer glorious act of bloodshed. They want that in their filthy potato faces. (laughs) Are these Sontarans different to the RTD Sontarans or the Moff Sontarans? They're designed differently. They look differently. Yes, that's true. Actually, I don't even remember if we get... Do we get RTD Sontarans? But are they different to the... The Poison Sky. That is RTD. Yeah, yeah. So is the identity, is the self-awareness of the Suntarans different in this one? Maybe that's a question for next week. Yeah, maybe that is something to pick up next time. But even in this teeny tiny little sliver of a segment that we get with Suntarans, I feel like they are very different. Mm-hmm. These are a Chris Nolan take on a military species. Yeah. A species that is intent solely on death, destruction, and conquest. That's it. Whereas in RTD slash Moff times, actually this is more Moff times, but what we get are Sontarans who are slightly the comic relief. 
and they think that they're warriors, but actually they're potatoes. These guys are fucking warriors. Yeah. You better not get in their way. And the cool thing is, is the same guy who was playing the comic relief is now playing one of these ultimate warriors. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, that's very impressive. Mm. Yeah, we did want Sontarans back. I remember calling it way back when. Series 13, it'll be Sontarans. Ka-ching. Yeah. And the Sontarans we get are possibly the new who standard yeah oh put a pin in this i look forward to having this conversation with you in a depth in the next new who review mm-hmm. can i talk about the music oh please do did yeah. you notice the music nope well i found that it was way better and i felt like sega nakanola oh, yeah finally gave himself permission to use strings like in series 11 and 12 he wanted it to feel very different from murray gold I hated it a lot of the time. I think a lot of people did. Some people may have preferred it. But in this one, at least, it's back to a fuller, more orchestral-ish sound. And at the end, where they're flitting between every last character and strand we've been introduced to, and the violins are keening and wailing, it feels so dramatic. And that wasn't the only point in the episode where I noticed the music. I was buoyed up by it in numerous places, and I was really glad at this change. Nice. Nice. So listen out for it next week. So is this finally this composer coming, like his worth, (laughs) don't cut that. Is this <laughs> this composer finally having his, his work come to fruition? Is this finally being able to express himself in the way that you think maybe he intended to from the start? It's possible. It's also possible that as this episode mixes in more fun with its grit, mm-hmm. he was given one note before series 11. And his notes ended up a bit one note. It was just, what sounds the most gritty? What's the gnarliest backdrop for this scene possible? And it got tiresome and was annoying. Fair. Yes. Okay, fair. (laughs) But here it's far better and it just ties in with the production design and the effects and every single department firing on all cylinders. Nice. Nice. That's a solid plus in this episode's favour. Yeah. I've got a minor point now. It's a micro point. I meant to say this earlier. Annabelle Scully, who played Claire Brown, also appeared in an episode of Poirot. Which one? She appeared as Miss Sorrel in After the Funeral. Oh, I can't place that one. Which season is that? Do you have that in front of you? I think it was series 10. Ah, yeah, that's why I can't remember it right now. I'm rewatching Poirot as I constantly do, and I'm currently on season four, I believe. Yes. So what's your next point as we veer towards ratings territory? Hopper virus. Oh, yes. We get a Hopper virus callback. That's right. A callback to one of the greatest episodes, one of the most well-written, well-scripted episodes of Doctor Who, the Hopper virus. At least Ryan had the decency to be haunted by Orphan 55 rather than wanting to bring it back. But why did Yaz have it on her person? Was she just walking around with a Hopper virus crisp bag on her? Did the doc take it out of Yaz's pockets? I thought she was rummaging in her own voluminous pockets. Why is it in her pockets, then? Because everything is in the doctor's pockets, even a squeaky toy, which, why isn't she using that on the Carvanista, by the way? (laughs) 
Yeah, that's true. I'm almost certain that she took it out of Yaz's hands and then used the copper virus to disable the laser cannons on the Lupari ship. Yeah. Even though she then (sighs) sonics the axe blade and then when the stuff all comes back on, the sonic is useless. Maybe it needs to work in concert with the hopper virus. No, I don't know. No, yeah, yeah, I don't like it. I feel like that's a Chibbers trying to refer back to Chibbers <laughs> yes. in order to substantiate Chibbers. And I'm not in favor of it. Yeah. It also seems like a really lazy thing. Oh, how do we get around this problem? Oh, don't worry about it. We've got a problem-solving gizmo. Done. Yeah, but you were just saying about, oh, why is Chibbers bringing all this stuff in that apparently has existed in the universe since the beginning? We've never seen it before. And now when he's bringing back stuff that you've seen before, you're like, oh, I didn't like this the first time. I don't like it now. I wish we had something better. Yeah, but you know what? (laughs) No, no, no. That's not the same thing. That is not the same thing. Don't put plot lines in my mouth, bro. What I'm thinking is Chibbers is being slightly lazy about this because Mm. either... You create a problem and then you have to create a solution, but you don't create a problem just to solve it by virtue of having a problem solving thing that just takes you to the next plot line. Yeah. Bing bong. Future drew back when hit. (laughs) Squareness gun. (laughs) Bing bong. This is a cheat code. This is a lazy way not to have to write that solution. But the better solution here is to not write a problem in the first place. If they were to show up on the spaceship and there were no laser cannons, you wouldn't need to have a lazy solution for that problem because there is no problem in the first place. Yeah, and the Doctor's supposed to have figured out the best place on the ship to land without immediately running afoul of these defense systems. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Right. I have a couple more unanswered questions, which I'd be very grateful if you answered. (laughs) Challenge accepted. Why is Dan's house number 37 next door to number 49 wow i didn't notice that yeah <laughs> it's clear as day as in do you see the number on screen is see that the numbers happening? on the doors side by side oh that's a continuity error maybe that could be filed under oh that's really shit production but i didn't realize <laughs> it you know what i didn't notice it so i'm willing to entirely disregard it okay why doesn't the Carvanista's laptop booby trap activate instantly? Why does it have to be voice activated by the doctor saying, oh, no, it's a booby trap? <laughs> yeah. I can ask you a question about your question. Why is the Carvanista's booby trap shaped like a human laptop? Slash, why does the Carvanista have a booby trap in the first place? Because what's the big deal? The house is empty. Maybe Dan Stevens is out and about. Oh, yes, of course. Wouldn't it be easier to just not have a booby trap? Mm. And then the doctor wastes that time. And if you are going to the trouble of setting up a booby trap with a laptop even, why doesn't it then feed the doctor false information rather than entirely accurate coordinates as to where he's just gone? Yeah. Yeah. Also a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) And my last question, which may break the episode anew, is... Oh, no. If... As the Carvanista says to Doc when she asks what the flux is, if they don't know what it is and he just has to resort to, it's the cataclysm, it's annihilation, it's the falling of the structure of the universe, how then can the survival core of the Carvanista fleet have been built and developed as a barrier against it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I have no answer. And there is none. No, correct. Mm. I mean, annoyingly, I have one more point. But... Oh, no, hit me, hit me, hit me. 
<laughs> but you've entirely undone it. Oh. But <laughs> okay, <laughs> because that point undoes this entire episode, at least the third act of it. But I was going to say another thing, and it is, you know what? It's a positive. Mm-hmm. I love the TARDIS door changing position. Yes. It's hilarious. And there's one thing that I want to call out, which is a positive in Dan Stevens' book. And that is that Dan's opening line when he enters the TARDIS is something along the lines of daft place to put a door in it. Yep, yep. Hilarious. Mm-hmm. That is an ingenious bit of writing. That entirely undoes all the, just the self-righteous conceit of the, oh my God, it's bigger on the inside. Wow. You put a door on the floor? You're a nimrod. What? (laughs) I don't care that it's bigger on the inside. Who cares about that? Great. Really, really great. Mm -hmm. In fact, I love Dan's reaction to the TARDIS in general. Oh, this is something you've softened towards since our oh, first really? review. Oh, really? What did I say the first time around? You were, you were annoyed that he didn't display the necessary awe. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I've matured since then. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, dude Meister, how about we try to assign a numerical value to this episode? Let's. And now it is time to rate this. Did we laugh or hate this? Bing bong, bing bong, hey, la 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 la. Ratings. Shazamatron and welcome, podcast land, to that beautiful section of this podcast episode that we like to call our listener minis. Well, we didn't play tip of finger on tip of nose, but we have agreed I shall start. So here I go, short and sweet, I believe. And I want to say, before I even start, I have zero recollection of what I said the last time that we reviewed this. So this may entirely contradict it. (laughs) I apologize, Slash. I don't, if that's the case. But anyway, what the flux is going on? Never in a million years did I think that I would say this, but Uwai Whitaker utterly embodies the doc. And not only that, she does so like it is nobody's business. You go, Jodie. Good on you. Jodie is clever and mysterious and badass and just the right amount of bastard. I'm wholly on. <laughs> Bravissima. Well done, doc. Well done, Jodie. Companions. Well, Yaz is good. Absolutely. But what the heck is Dan doing in this? Not sure what to emphasize in that sentence, actually. I don't mean what is he doing or even what is he doing. It's more what is Dan or rather why this fellow or to apply a suitable abbreviation, WTF! <laughs> I'm of the persuasion that post-credit sequences and teaser trailers on the BBC YouTube channel aren't necessarily afforded the same canonical gravitas as in-episode footage. So... With that in mind, Dan Stevens, please, I mean no offense, but do me a favor and sod all the way off, if you please. You make no sense. You're poorly crafted. I don't think you're a person. And I'd rather we lost you in favor of Yaz or Doc or any of the actual characters that matter and I care about. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. The foe. Great. Theatrical. Stunning. This better be the head of division or uh, some kind of... I've forgotten the name of the James Bond title now. Spectre? No, the other one before that about his home... Spyfall? Spyfall! Yes, exactly. This better be a Spyfall level competing agent of division. I would like that kind of interplay between Doc and this character 
Because otherwise, why isn't it just the master? We get all that buildup of, hey, since we were kids or, you know, since we were young and unknowing of the universe and all of its mysteries, we've been at odds with each other. That's what we've been told about the master and Doc all along. So, yeah, I'm still young and naive. I look forward to this bearing out perfectly well, really acting out. Yeah, fuck it. No, I'm very (laughs) happy about this. I'm very optimistic production value well slap my ass and call me eleanor because wowie does this app look nice and not to look ahead but i recall this entire season looks utterly wonderful whatever the beeb is doing they are doing it right welcome to stonsville the beam in effects at the start you know the scene where they beam down to whatever planet swarm is incarcerated on yes that beam in effect it might just be the nicest most beautiful beam in effect i have ever seen in my life And I've watched Star Trek a bajillion times. That is gorgeous. Everything about this episode screams high production value, care taken, money invested well, time and effort spent rigorously and productively. Well done, BBC. Well done, everyone who was part of this. I am utterly in awe of you. Greatest asset. Well, I can't believe it's setting up so much cool stuff. This season is going to be great and exciting and most of all, sensical. Biggest flaw. <laughs> oh, maybe zip up and keep your turgid ambition to yourself episode. Main takeaway, this is New Who. And I have written down a rating of, I'm sure I'm going to come to regret this, 4.1. Oh, you may not. <laughs> it might be okay. The innocence of youth, eh? Certainly. Okay. My rating is maximal, as indeed Flux is. So it's befitting, right? Here we go. There are at least two kinds of nonsense. The kind we've been dealing with on Doctor Who recently has been the spurious, inauthentic kind, where importance is forced upon a relationship or an event because TV demands it. TV has to TV in the same way a movie's got to movie. You've got to hit the beats, especially when it's all about how grim and gritty it is, when atmosphere devours significance. One example of a good scene slightly undercut by this very thing is Claire versus the Weeping Angel, because she basically escapes it. She's inside the house, but then she just stares at it, waits to mess up, and gets zapped back into the past, when she could just have slammed the door shut. Why doesn't she? Because TV! Mm, yeah. But lest we forget, nonsense at its best is hilarious fun. And that is also what we get here while giving us tension and scares and mystery all along the way. The Weeping Angel minute, which I've just slagged off, is hugely effective. There are the close ups on the face and the hands and the keys. Claire has that little look of victory as she starts to salvage the situation. Then you have the side on shot showing just how close they are together as the angel has advanced. The punch to the dopamine centers of the brain I experienced on watching this first time around is still hard in evidence, and it looks fabulous. Even the reflection of the stars in Vinder's windows as we pan around his crow's nest is a magnificent effects shot, and we get to see the beauty of space imagined on numerous occasions. Like you, Leon, I've watched all kinds of Star Trek, and those black backgrounds with the white pinpricks, they look nothing like this stunning i know yeah it's fantastic i like the exterior of carvanista's ship too even as that just whizzes past tiny pernickety point on that though when they pass through the temporal residue around carvanista's ship they distort the visuals in a spatial kind of way 
if it's a temporal disturbance, shouldn't they have gone full super slow-mo, followed by a Benny Hill sequence where they're suddenly running around the TARDIS console room? But, okay, that stupid point aside, I thought that one thing we may forget on a rewatch is we are being set up to think that Dan is special, that he's got something about him, that this is why he's the number one human. But he really doesn't. It is just a coincidence. He isn't special, even though he is, because Yaz is, even though she isn't. So while we have to see Dan being so, so likeable, there's no greater cosmic significance to that. He's just a really fucking nice guy. And let that be enough. I didn't mind any of that. I go back and forth on Dan. I really warm to his line, just think of me as a free exhibit, just a little bit livelier than the others, which made that museum scene almost bearable. Conversely, definitely cut, you don't look anything like four bears. Absolute crap. Stopped it dead. But my favourite line in the whole script, we haven't done a favourite part, it's because it was Dan holding his tiny house saying, I can't live in that. My favourite line. Really? What? My favourite line in the whole script. Yep. Oh, God. All right. (laughs) But the whole point is this episode is all about too many people. My enraptured response last time relied on this being almost the entire cast of characters because, like you, Leon, what a lot of potential it sets up. We'll have enough time to see these few play and get developed by way of handsome backstories. But then if memory serves, about half of them will feel undercooked in the final analysis. And so, whereas originally I thought it was okay for part one to do what it did, gratuitous dramatis personae, expanded to 50 minutes, as we now embark upon this series as a whole, I feel that actually it does have to assume somewhere between zero and one-sixth of the responsibility for the overall serial's failures. Because otherwise, what are we going to do? Are we going to say like, Ah, but part six could save it and then give that a 0.0. So I'm not going to go as high as I was. But since I can't remember exactly the size and scope of the failures, I won't be taking too much off. It is, after all, just TV. Was it fun? Yes. The critical peril in each of the vast number of storylines set up, we flip between them all at the end. And it really does seem potentially bigger than anything we've seen before in Doctor Who. The last few minutes are so climactic and what makes it perfect is it culminates in the Doctor alone at the controls. She's not alone in the TARDIS, but it zooms in on her. We zoom past the humans and finally Jodie is front and centre. She is fighting for her life. She is desperately giving it her all as she has been leading this episode and actually compelling your attention. And honestly, the word I thought of was magnificent. And I'm going to give it a 4.3. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. I, I was almost certain you were going to give this a three point something. Nice. Very good stuff, dude. Right. Well, how about we have a listen to whether Podcast Land agrees with us? Because I'm very happy to say you and I, friends who agree with one another. Yeah, same page club. Nice. <laughs> Listener minis. Now let's hear from Podcast Land. Max to fifty, or it would get out of hand. Kablamatron Podcast Land, and welcome to the Listener Mini section of this podcast episode. Holy smokeroonies and cheesecakes! Thank you, everyone who sent in a Listener Mini for this podcast episode. We are going to read three of you in full, and the rest we are going to snippage. But beforehand, and fret not, we will bookend with this as well. Please. Podcast land, head on over to whobackwinner.com and read all of these minis in their full splendor. Yeah, where you can find lots of bonus material, even connected to some of the minis we read out in full. Ooh, hi! Drew! Yes? Who's first? Why, first up, it's Vamshi. Hello, Vamshi. New reviewer-ish. 
kind of. <laughs> Hello, Vamji. Vamji says, hi, gang. Long time listener. First-ish time reviewer here. <laughs> when you read out my embarrassing old username from the B070 review last week, I realized that I would love to send some reviews in and actually contribute before you guys catch up. I'm assuming we are talking about Todd's Crash Test Dummy or Possibly. Crash Dummy. Yeah. Probably uh, not Tom Violin, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Vamshi, hello. Welcome back. Vamshi begins with a list of likes, the first of which is The Format, a six-episode serial in New Who. Sounds exciting, though sometimes in classic. For even the best serials, six is too many. <clears throat> Genesis. Oh, really? <laughs> Next like, Jody. She really feels like the Doctor now. Oh, yay. Here's our first time listener reviewer friend who agrees with us. Ish. Ish. <laughs> Her character is interestingly flawed, broody, brash, and genuinely angry underneath. She's not so sure of herself, but I don't think you're supposed to relate to her completely. It's an interesting decision. The mystery of all the plot threads, including Division and the Timeless Child. How do they fit together in the end? They don't, but still, it's nice to pretend. The scenes with Swarm and the Doctor, very intense and artsy. Flux versus TARDIS and door placement, creative. Agreed. And how good everything looks, Carvanista slash Swarm slash Sontarans? Amazing. And last like, Evil Dan memes. Is this a thing? I may need to Google this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, because it's the antithesis of his far too lovely, spotless, immaculate character. Oh, interesting. I'm saying this as someone who hasn't Googled this yet, but I wonder if maybe it touches upon the thing that I remember saying the first time around when we got a introducing Dan as Dan. Do you remember? No. Do you remember? I can't remember if it was a post-credit sequence or if it was a teaser, but do you remember the introducing John Bishop as Dan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in our review of that, whichever episode it was, I remember saying... He seemed really sinister. Like, he seemed evil. Oh, yes, in the Revolution review. Yes, you did say that, of course. Revolution, there you go, yeah. I haven't looked up Evil Dan memes. I will, but I would like to think that maybe it agrees with past me. Anyway, Mm. no more likes, more not as much likes. (gasps) Clunky dialogue, especially the intro set piece. Dan is a wholly unnecessary character, agreed. Preach! And (laughs) final one, mostly that the episode was a mess. Seems like they were just trying to excite us with no clear plan. Indeed. And Vamshi has provided us with a rating of lots of potential and sometimes captivating 3.5 out of 5. Welcome aboard, Vamshi. Welcome back aboard. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, actually, good point. (laughs) Glad to still be on this temporal road with you. I guess with 3.5, Vamshi isn't exactly in the same page club, but he is roughly in the same page building. (laughs) And I said that for no reason whatsoever. The same um, school of thought, would you say, Drew? (laughs) Yes, this is an excellent (laughs) phrase. Thank you very much, Vamshi. Who's next? Why, next up, it's Andy Parkinson. What up, Andy? Hiya, Andy. <laughs> Andy starts, howdy, chaps. That's what Andy sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are, Jody's long season, and for me, the start of some of the finest episodes in New Who. Whoop, whoop, and Andy backs this up with a list of likes. Ooh. First like, lots of great lines, like, I was a ball boy for Trent. 
Carvanista, in my original review, I didn't like him, but on rewatch, he is great fun and brilliantly played by Craig Ells. Mmm. Ooh, I. Although the cold open is a bit dumb, continues Andy, the doctor trying to release the handcuffs by speaking Scottish, etc., is very funny. Agreed. Next, like, it looks totally beautiful, agreed. Doctor Who has never looked this good. Uh, ish. And that cliffhanger! Yeah, that's pretty solid stuff, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... And he has also provided a list of boofs. First, boof. I guess Carvinista doesn't like humans, but surely he'd find it easier if he explained why he wanted Dan to come with him rather than kidnap him. A willing passenger is better than an unwilling one. End of list of beefs. (laughs) (laughs) Overall concludes, Andy, this is a cracking first episode in the Flux arc. Yes, oh, yeah. it has flaws, and it does queue up plot lines that will ultimately disappoint. Oh, damn. <laughs> but it definitely hits all the right notes for me, and I can remember being very excited for the next episode. Nice. And I remember the next episode being pretty much as good, actually. I think the first three episodes... The third one is the Angels one, right? No, I think that's the fourth one. It's the fourth one. I can't remember what the third one is in that case, but I, I remember at least three episodes of this season being terrific. Yes. And the next one is one of them, as well yeah so i'm mega looking forward to this but what does andy award this leon oh what a solid question andy awards this 4.9 trick-or-treaters carrying a can of beer and eggs out of five huge heart (laughs) (laughs) yes indeed that's the andy parkinson way people who are not andy parkinson please high five andy online andy can be found at caffrey's watch drew 71 that's 71 the number yeah and if you're jd maybe high five him in person yes indeed (laughs) thanks andy who's next why next up it's jess hooray welcome back jess who's jess well jess says hello guys it's jess back again with my second review whoop whoop first new who review Yes, that's true. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Very glad to be traveling down two temporal roads with you, Jess. Jess begins and Flux begins with the first ever Halloween special of Doctor Who ever. Immediately we are introduced to the Doc and Yaz, who are already in a touch of trouble, which is a cold open I find captivating, and the not-so-sly reference to 909 made my fan senses go off. There were many bonuses to this episode, including some terrific special effects, and the return of the Weeping Angels, and a brilliant piece of foreshadowing, leaving us with curiosity and suspense, wanting to know what happens to Claire, the woman in the street, and how she knew the Doctor in a potentially River Song-style arc. Jess continues, I found Dan frankly annoying. Also, where did he get the money to buy kids candy for Halloween if he can't even afford to feed himself? Yeah, good question. The introduction of the aggressive Wookiee, I mean Lupari, was a bonus to this episode as I liked the annoyed yet obligated way he had to stick around. Yeah, some of his condescension to Dan was especially fun. Mm, Agreed. Low IQ species and all of that. Jess dislikes the concept of the flux in general, and when the Lupari surrounded the Earth to protect it, shouldn't it have just eaten the Earth and the Lupari ships? Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes it should. Yes, exactly. This thing swallows planets, so are the Lupari ships coated in some sort of anti-universal, anti-planetary sheath? No, 
hell? That's nonsense. Anyway. If they can find a substance that can combat it, then surround the flux and serial over. Yeah. Wait, yeah, agreed. Exactly. Put that substance in your shower gel and just wash in it every morning and (laughs) you will be impervious to the flux. Anywho, Jess continues, this episode felt cramped with so many plot lines being introduced and most of the story being nothing but building plot with little to no attention to the character's actual development for a smoother start to the story. Hmm. And Jess concludes with a random fact. The cloister bell tolls again as the flux approaches the TARDIS. Probably the first time we have heard that in a while. That's true, actually, yeah. And overall, Jess gives it a 2.4 out of 5. You know what? Solid. Absolutely solid. I'm convinced. (laughs) Thank you very much, Jess, who, sadly, not on Twitter. I say sadly, you're no longer on Twitter, Drew. I will very soon no longer be on Twitter. Jess, admirable. (laughs) That's not to say the other people are wrong, but shit emoji at Twitter in general. That's right. Yes. Thank you very much, Jess. Please keep um coming. Who's next? Why next up it's Kieran Evans. What up, Kieran? And Kieran thinks this episode is good and gives it a 3.8 out of 5, downsizing your home a bit too literally. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic rating system. People who are not Kieran, head on over to whobackone.com, read Kieran's mini in its full splendor, obviously. And say hi to Kieran online. He can be found at what, Drew? KJ Evans 2. For all your Evan needs. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Kieran. Who's last? Why, it's GP. <gasps> I said G, you said P. G, P, G, P. That's right. Hello, GP. Wasn't even a lag. <laughs> hi, GP. GP says snip, snippity, snip, 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 and concludes with a rating of 2.4. Not really that scary anymore, Weeping Angels. Ooh. Snap. Thank you very much, GP. Ooh, thanks for invalidating most of my mini-review, GP. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. People who are not GP, head on over to Insta, that's the gram, and YouTube, that's the tubes. I don't know. And follow GP. He can be found at... Finding G-Spots. Ah, a life's mission. Thank you very much, GP. Which I think describes accurately the feeling of finding GP online. So, yeah, (laughs) get on with that. (laughs) Thank you, everyone who sent something in for this episode. You're all a splendid bunch. Everyone who didn't, don't worry. Head on over to whobackwanna.com. Read all of these minis in their full splendor. Right, holy smokerinis and cheesecakes, that brings us to the end of the Halloween apocalypse soiree. Dude! Yes. How do you feel? Do you feel like we accomplished what we set out to do? What was that? Review Flux? The first episode of it. Uh, yes. Otherwise, Excellent. let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up, podcast land, for another hour and 45 or something. <laughs> <laughs> what is coming up, Dude Meister? Next up, we're going to have a classic review, namely of... The Happiness Patrol. Oh, nice. Yes, I've listened to two-thirds of it so far. It's a three-parter. We are reviewing it tomorrow, podcast land, just for weird temporal context. That will mean nothing after the fact. But I, um, I've heard it features a star turn by a certain just a minute, doyen. Well, you're going to have to tune in to our review of that serial to find out more. <laughs> <laughs> 
After that, we're going to have a new episode, namely War of the Sontarans. Mmm, tasty. At some point, are we going to do an audio who, Drew? Yes, we're going to do Doctor Who Redacted, don't you know? Oh, excellent choice. And stop asking us about bonus episodes, Podcast Land. They're bonuses. Their very nature negates their predictability. Also, we're in a sprint to the finish here. We have got no time for extras. <laughs> <laughs> Drew, in the meantime, you're no longer on Twitter. Can nope. you be found anywhere? You could potentially reach me at whobackwhen at gmail.com if Leon bothers to forward me uh, correspondence. I will, yes, I would. Please send emails to Drew to whobackwhen at gmail.com and those emails will be forwarded accordingly. Whobackwhen at gmail.com and also at whobackwhen on Twitter are a superb way of reaching us collectively, podcast land. Well done, Drew, for getting out of the (laughs) Twitter BDSM dungeon. Uh, Sadly, I am still there myself, although only nominally so. Podcast Land, if you want to say hi to me, please do. I will say hi right back. I can be found at Ponken, P-O-N-K-E-N. But goodness knows for how much longer. Otherwise, it behooves me to say, but thank you, Podcast Land, for being such a lovely audience. You are wonderful, and we love you dearly. Please continue to rock on and be rad and excellent to one another. Cha-chao. (laughs) Bye-bye. Kablamo! Did you enjoy the show? Then please do what the cosmos compels you to and spread the gospel of who back when. Tell your friends! I've got no friends! No problemo, tell some strangers! Hey! Like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash whobackwhen. All in one word. Are you into Twitter? Awesome. High five us online and we'll high five you right back. You guessed it. We're at whobackwhen. All in one word. Check us out on Instagram for behind the scenes photos and other Whovian goodness. Watch our videos or even listen to our podcast on YouTube. That's whobackwhen.com slash YouTube. Vote us up on Reddit. Listen to us on Stitcher and head on over to our website whobackwhen.com where you can submit a review of your own, browse the article archives and peruse our visual index of aliens, monsters, and more, which increases in Kablamos with every episode. And lastly, give us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps our show get noticed and earns you lots of karma points. That's it. Rock on and be rad and excellent to each other. Catch your earballs in our next Who review or bonus episode. Until then, cha ciao. Who back when?